0: So I had a podcast the other day and talking about the popular converse used in, used in powerlifting. Um, and I understand you had a, had a listen. And um, with your experience, um, you could obviously probably see some of the, I guess, some of the flaws in some of the things I say or maybe the way I communicate it. And I'm very interested to learn from you. To see how i guess to get better information about uh what powerlifters should be should be doing or how all sports should apply um footwear and foot mechanics to to lifting i mean what what is uh i guess let's start with uh i mean tell us a little bit about yourself first so people know yeah so are talking to
1: yeah this is the uh the first time i've ever encountered a podiatrist who is into powerlifting and, and am I right in saying you got a 300 kilo squat?
2: Almost. Ooh. Yeah. How'd that happen? <laughs> Look, I don't know if there's, first of all, thanks for having me on. Nice. Um, uh, I'm not sure that there are that many, uh, powerlifting podiatrists. Yeah. So I'm, I'm in a category. <laughs> <laughs> I may have, I may claim, that I um, have the uh, the best squat in podiatry, but um, I think it's interesting that that um, oh, first of all, I am a, I am a podiatrist. I've been a podiatrist for thirty years. Mm. Um, I previously um, worked in the area of strength and conditioning from a physical education point of view. Um, I worked at both the university and TAFE level in the early um fitness instructor type courses where we were training people to be gym instructors and aerobics instructors and i left that life and had a a complete change and went into podiatry but naturally uh, i took with me my interest in um, sports and sports biomechanics Mm. particularly because of my interest in weight training my early participation in weight training was from um more or less a bodybuilding style of, of training even though i only um, dabbled in competition once um, and i kind of left that when i went into podiatry in uh 1990 um, during that period you know i became a father and, and was running a business and so forth and i i drifted away but once my boys became active in sport, I went back to the gym and rediscovered that a few things had changed. Mm. You know, back in the day, it's, it's, it's probably a little bit off topic, but back in the day when we were teaching um, the fitness instructors in the, uh, in the 1980s, the three main lifts were considered from a risk-benefit point of view, something that we steer clear of. Um, there was a lot of machine-based exercise, mm. Um and that type of thing was advocated over things like deadlifts and squats. It was considered popular thought at that time that the if you're exercising with the general public, that um, people were more likely to hurt themselves than benefit from it. Coming back into the world um, of uh, strength and conditioning in 2015 with my boys, uh training for their their sport which was cricket they were fast bowlers um i was really interested to see how how the field has evolved and um i got swept up in that and realized that some of the things that we were concerned about in the past were unfounded and um and i'm really pleased to see how how that has changed but anyway that could be a topic for another day now from a podiatry point of view um i know that people talk about creating a stable base and um but what i hear is little bits of anatomy discussed and little bits of biomechanics discussed and emphasis on some things that matter is sometimes overlooked and emphasis on things that that um don't matter come to the fore yeah and I think I have an opportunity as a podiatrist and someone who has a detailed understanding of the anatomy and biomechanics of, of how the foot likes to function and, and how it can function optimally to at least provide an opinion. Um, I'm not an expert power lifter. I'm a novice power lifter. I'm putting some reasonable numbers on the board for a 60 year old, but I still consider myself as a lifter somewhat of a novice. Mm-hmm. But I'm not a novice when it comes to having an understanding of how the foot functions optimally when it's trying to create a stable base.
1: So it's interesting, but from, from, from my perspective, I feel like the biomechanics of the foot isn't, I mean, you're the first person I ever heard of speaking about it, Gus. Actually, I'll be honest in terms of the, the, the level of foot position that we go into is just, where is it relative to your shoulders usually i would i
0: always would, would say with with coaching it seems to be after trying to stabilize the core and spinal mechanics foot's generally the second second point where we look for in terms of what um, upstream effects it may be having on mm. other structures in the body and its ability to create stability and perform um i guess there is uh looking, trying to have a look at some of your insights into, I guess, some of the things that maybe are taught incorrectly, um, in the, in the industry. So what, what are some of the things, okay, we'll start with the powerlifting perspective before we go into patients and stuff like that. But what, um, what do you see in terms of not just lifters, but what coaches are teaching that might be, you might consider needs a bit more information on.
2: I think, um, well, let's, oh, can I come to that point after um, I say what we, we, we would all be in agreement with? Mm, okay. um, so we all understand that um, any structure that is bearing weight requires a stable base. Yes. And we can create a stable base with the foot, but the foot is a unique type of base in that it's that it has to serve the function as a mobile structure at some times Mm -hmm. and as a stable base at other times. So if it's operating as a rigid base when it's supposed to be working as a mobile adapter, then it's not going to be very efficient. And conversely, in our area of interest, if it's somewhat mobile or it's out of alignment, then it will form an inferior base and it will require more energy and muscle input and attention from the lifter to sort of compensate for that lack of intrinsic stability. Now, the foot is an interesting structure in that if you get all the joints aligned and all the bones in a so-called theoretical neutral position, um, it's actually self-supporting. And so um, I can remember learning at, at, at university, you could put the bones together like a puzzle, and even without ligaments and tendons and muscles, it would all, almost form um, a shape of, of an arch, like if you can create a stone arch where the blocks are self-supporting. And that's the principle we're trying to look at. We're looking for ideal joint alignment that is going to provide a rigid base if we're squatting for instance the foot needs to be a rigid base and if our first objective of getting all those bones in an alignment where we've got maximum joint congruency then it will be stable
0: would you say a a common cause of dysfunction is the foot where we do have or use
2: absolutely because if you put a spongy moving base between your foot and the floor, then that kind of defeats the purpose. If I grab a shoe like this, which is a running shoe, with a whole bunch of soft foam, and I'm trying to create a stable base, and it's flexing all around the place, Mm. that's gonna be hopeless. Mm. Whereas if I've got a shoe like this, that has a hard, rigid sole then really that's a rigid interface between my foot and the floor and it's really bringing the floor to my foot
1: right so so for, so, pe- for, for sorry just for, for people just listening um steven just showed us your classic running shoe with the 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 bigger heel and the and, the, and all the padding that goes with it and the air bubble etc and then as now shown as is a left-in shoe basically with the foot yeah. sole. So
2: that's, yep. that's a white in shoe, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, it's the Adidas version. This midsole material has probably the density of the, the rubber matting that we yep. stand on uh, when we do most of our squats. And standing on this is the equivalent of putting another, say, 10 to 15 millimetres of hard mat on the floor. Hmm. Which is just the floor. So if I took the insole out, as I have in this, I then have the hard um, cardboard interface between my foot and the high-density EVA sole, which is the equivalent of the floor. So I am literally standing on the floor.
1: So, so is could we make the point then that it would it would be just better just to be barefoot right would that be okay.
2: preferable over the shoe or if you've got a foot structure that is capable of making a good stable base and i think yep. most people by and large can create a reasonable to good stable base with the feet that they've got then the answer would i i, I i'm happy to say yes
1: okay
2: but I say it with some reserve because I'm in the crook foot business, and I see so many feet that couldn't do that.
1: Right. Okay. That's interesting.
2: So what a come. So I'm a, I'm a little bit biased from my exposure to so many crummy feet. Uh,
1: that's sorry. That that's very similar to what you say a lot, Gus. Is that like, in in a perfect anatomy, people can do this, this, and this. But you spend years correcting people's alignments before they can lift to the potential right and it's the same thing like a perfectly functional foot yes but how many people have perfectly functional feet otherwise you'd be out of business right yeah well if it wasn't any
2: dodgy feet i'd have to find something <laughs> else to do yeah.
0: <laughs> so what are some of the limitations that uh, that would cause people to, for, for the inability to build a stable or strong arch or have an arch in their foot
2: well inherent hypermobility um so some people have instead of having a foot, they've got a sloppy bag of bones. And they just walk around with very flat, flexible feet. And no matter how hard they work on their calves and their glutes and all the other stuff, they find it very difficult to create a supinated, neutral alignment of the bones of their foot. Um, They're the people that, that... I would, I would use an orthotic for okay. to try and uh, give them a brace, to give them an alignment aid um, to creating that stable foot.
0: So how would they create, how would they start to create more
2: strength from an orthotic in the foot? Because their bones are able to align in that neutral posture that I was describing before. Okay. While their foot is a sloppy bag of bones, that joint congruency is lost the bones aren't lined up, and so they're flapping about. Whereas if we can get their joints to line up, and then it's stable, then they'll be fine. Now, the person who has a a rigid flat foot, and there are some of those, that's fine. They're gonna have to work hard on externally rotating their lower limb to get a good alignment for squatting, for instance, using other mechanisms. But as long as that foot is stable, then they'll be okay. And this varies from person to person greatly, and it even varies from race to race. Typically, Indigenous Australians have very low arches, quite flat feet to look at. Some of them are stable, some of them are not. So what are some, so
0: they, of, the, what are some of your indicators of a stable foot that that looks, I mean, incredibly flat? or is... Yes.
2: Well, see, I can do that in an examination. I can watch them stand. I can watch them walk. I can get them to do, say, um, heel raises with, with uh, two feet or single leg heel raise. And those people with a real sloppy foot, they do a single leg heel raise and they're all over the shop. Mm-hmm. Whereas the person who can create good alignment, you see the arch come up, they, they crank the foot into the right position. This is all done muscularly, of course. The joints line up into their nice stable posture and up goes the heel and they can hold that position. The person who's inherently um, hyperflexible or or has difficulty with that alignment, not for muscular reasons, but for structural structural reasons, they'll be very sloppy. I can examine them non-weight bearing, and I can take their foot and put them in the right alignment manually, and then push against that, and you'll see that it's stable. The moment we unlock it and push against it, it's moving around again.
0: What about a high what about the individuals that have a high arch, natural high arch? Can that be deceptive?
2: It can be very deceptive because if it's hypermobile, um, it will still move too much. Mm-hmm. And, and that changes thing- sorry, it changes the way the um, the foot affects the leg too. So the very low foot, when it's behaving badly, tends to cause the knees to what our friend Andrew Locke would say, valgus inwards, mm. the person with the high arch foot, when it's moving, tends to cause the lower limb to rotate more. Both of those scenarios create a knee that gets in an unhappy position.
0: So high arch internally internally rotates the foot or
2: more external, yeah. so external rotation of the foot? The axis of the bit that pronates and supernates, and I don't want to get too too technical, mm-hmm. But the pronation and supination occurs at the joint between the talus, the first bone of the foot, mm-hmm. and the calcaneus, the heel bone. Mm-hmm. So that's called the, we call that the subtalar joint. Now, in a low arch foot, the axis of movement is quite low, so most of the movement in pronation and supination will be eversion and inversion. Mm-hmm. Now, if the axis is tilted up, say in the high arch foot. Most of the movement, instead of being eversion and inversion, will in fact be internal rotation and external rotation because the axis is up. So a joint will always move about its axis. So if the, the axis is low, it goes that way. If the axis is high, it's going to go around that way. That's a fascinating thing. We see that in people running, but we also see it in people that are lifting as well.
1: Fascinating.
0: So... Would would um, because would an individual with the high arch position? So we generally are solving different problems. Because uh, I, just I guess from what I'm I've seen, and you can correct me, is that yeah, I've seen people with a high arch position. We're normally focusing on trying to stabilize more inward, so rather than out. Because I find people with flat feet have that I guess that internal pr- or uh, or uh, supination. And then people with high arch are more likely to create a greater pronation, and you know it looks like they're externally rotating through the hip, but they're actually just pronating the foot, so they have this unstable foot. Would I be correct in saying something like that?
2: Yeah. So, so the person who has the low arch foot, it's very easy to see their knees valgus inwards, mm-hmm. but they won't be rotating so much. Okay. So they'll 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 sink inwards, mm-hmm. whereas the high arch person who may be occasionally, I don't see it much, but who may be even supinated too much. They may have too much external rotation. Depends on their, their... see the other factor is, what are their hips doing? So, you know, some people have a set point with their hips whether they can turn out more or in, and that has to be taken into consideration as well. We're always talking about multiple joints, but just in looking at the foot, the high arch person is more likely to rotate and you'll see their knees swinging in and out quite a lot. Whereas the flat foot person, you don't see that that swing. It's more valgus in or various out.
0: Okay, so what, what, what are some of the um, strengthening or stabilizing interventions you take for someone with a high arch but mo- mobile foot
2: or overly <laughs> mobile foot? Yeah, well, it's going to apply to both. You know, weakness is weakness, and the the muscles that control both the high arch foot and the low arch foot, the key muscles are external to the foot, and perhaps that's one of the points that um, was important for me to bring up today, is that the small muscles within the foot are a little bit like the small muscles in the spine um in that they provide a great deal of feedback about what where the position the foot is in but they don't provide a lot in terms they, they do their, their their part and they do contract when they're asked to provide stability but their input is very limited the main muscles that control the stability of the foot are those that are going to to contribute to the alignment of the foot. So you've got your external to the foot muscles such as the calves, obviously. Um, We've got a deep muscle in behind the calves called the tibialis posterior and that tibialis posterior comes down and its tendon attaches medially to on the inside of the foot to the navicular bone which is the apex of the arch. So it is a very important muscle in terms of providing that supernatory moment that is going to hold the apex of the arch in its right position. It doesn't do it singly. It does it in in cooperation with the calves. And if we go further up, even up up to the glutes, obviously. Um, Now, that controls the rear foot alignment. Now, it doesn't matter whether this person is a high arch uh, person or a low arch person. Those muscles control the rear foot, and that's part A. But the next important part is making sure that the forefoot part of the foot is planted on the ground as well. We've just talked about the rear foot muscles that bring the foot into alignment uh, for stability, but the other muscles that control the forefoot are the muscles on the other side of the leg such as the perineals, they come down and they provide movement in the other direction. So they provide a pronatory moment to get the forefoot square on the ground. If you just have the rear foot muscles um, of the calves and, and tip post pulling it into supination, then the whole foot tips that way and is not stable. We've got to bring... The front of the foot down against that supinatory moment. So you have um, opposite movements the rear foot wanting to supinate, and the forefoot needs to pronate hard against the ground. Now that comes from the perineal muscles, which are on the outside of the leg. Mm-hmm. So if you've got your feet on the ground now, plonk your foot on the ground, create that supinatory moment with your rear foot, and then press your big toe joint, not the big toe, the big toe joint down on the ground. That's your perineals doing that. And it provides an opposite force, which creates the locking or stabilizing of the foot. That first metatarsal phalangeal joint needs to be on the ground and it needs to be pressing. The moment that comes off the ground, the whole foot becomes less stable mm-hmm. and that is a key element and you asked me before what are some of the faults that coaches give in creating foot stability and the biggest one I see is over pressing with the big toe because the moment you press down with the big toe excessively the joint the first up. MTP joint comes up right okay and so you've got a somewhat supinated foot but it's not a stable supinated foot. Mm -hmm. The only way you can create a stable supinated foot is to push that first MTP joint down. I hope that's not too too convoluted, but there's your key. Now, it doesn't mean you don't press with the big toe. It doesn't mean the big toe sticks up in the air, far from it. The big toe sits quietly. Now, um, Instagram's great for looking at people doing different exercises. Sebastian Sebastian Ora posted pictures of, of Hattie doing um, squats and deadlifts the other day, and her feet were beautiful in terms of their alignment, their stability, and their relationship with the knee. And her foot looked, for, for what of a better word, reasonably quiet. Yeah. It was so aligned, it just sat there. And she wiggled her toes, then she planted the, the MTPJ, and away she went, mm-hmm. whereas you see some others who are pressing with their big toe. The chap from Squat University did something the other day and he was pressing with his big toe and he's big on that. And it's going, it's it's wiggling. Mm-hmm.
1: This is so, really interesting.
0: Um, I find I, I find that that's, I see the, when I get people to come, in, when I come in and have a look at their foot, I find some people will find that extremely difficult to do. They seem to have zero perception on driving that joint down, no matter how it's a skill. Yeah,
2: it is has this, to be learned. Is and this things an, that are difficult need to be learned? Is
0: it, do you, would you say it's something that is is relearned? Is it is it like a natural thing that we lose, and then we generally relearn
2: it because of our I guess. I think, I think um, in a good foot, it would just do it more or less automatically. But remember, squatting um, large amounts of weight is not a natural thing to do. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we, you know, ancient man was who was a hunter and gatherer probably picked up the odd rock, but I doubt, you know, mm-hmm. whether he picked up a 200-kilo rock, threw it across his shoulders and started to do a few reps. Mm-hmm. So um, the foot has not been challenged through the natural progression through the generations to perform right. this. So we've learned how can we use what we've got use our anatomy use the way that the biomechanics of the foot works to help us do what we're trying to do here create a stable foot structure under excessive load
0: so if let's say you had individual that start you their first intervention you've used it was to put an, give them an orthotic to create this uh, alignment what are some of the regressions further? Would you look at ways to remove it through forms of exercise, or just they they start to build more strength over time in?
2: in that's a, that's a that's a question I'm asked every day, mm-hmm. particularly by parents with kids. Right. Um, you know, is this a permanent thing? Um, my glasses are a permanent thing. We're yet to find a way. apart from laser and so forth but there are no exercises that i can do to compensate for my glasses and i tell my patients for some people because of their appalling feet they will be wearing their orthotics more or less all the time particularly for for when they're challenged through exercise and so forth for the rest of their lives other people particularly the kids um they go they leave my office with a bunch of exercises for them to do and I use Andrew's, Andrew Locke's expression. I say, you will be doing these until I tell you to stop. And that, that day will not come because they need to exercise their body to try and stimulate the, the body to self-manage. Mm. So people with somewhat dodgy feet might use an orthotic to help train them into better posture up to the point where they no longer need it. And things like working the glutes, working the calves, and just practicing without their orthotic to try and stimulate the muscles and being self-aware of those muscles um, to bring about a better result. But if, if I can just be a little bit cheeky and say, you can create core stability by doing exercises, but we continue to use a weight belt when we're squatting because we can brace against the belt and create a greater level of stability by doing that. So we don't discard the belt even after we've learned to create That's a stable ball like <laughs> yeah. without it. Mm. Now, what I use an orthotic when I squat. Um, could I squat without it? Yes. But when I squat with it, I've got a stable base to brace my foot against. So I don't have to think about that shit. I can plant my feet and then concentrate on what I'm doing. I don't want to be thinking about my tendency to have a bit of a flat foot while I'm squatting.
0: Mm. So do you think the barefoot world have may maybe take some things too far?
2: I think that's inevitable. And I've seen the Barefoot Revolution in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're old enough, you see things come and go. Um, this has been around before. Um, so, especially with running. And um, some people, you know, take something, a thought, a concept, and make a philosophy and a lifestyle out of it. Mm-hmm. And we see that a lot, don't
1: yeah. we? Yeah, yeah, with everything. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, so, back to where we were talking about with the trying to create strength for the foot being, like you explained this, like multiple, there's more more variables than just the muscles that keep the foot strong, but we've got to look at the hip, we've got to look at the core, we've got to look at all those things that contrib- are contributing factors to creating a stable plus mobile foot.
2: Yes, we do. Okay, um, And uh, I think a lot of unilateral exercises are helpful as, as an adjunct or a supplementary exercise to our main exercises, particularly around the foot. Um, I said that the uh, intrinsic muscles of the foot um, are overrated, but they do have a role. The intrinsic muscles of the foot in EMG studies, when we have a double foot stance, so typically like we're doing a squat, EMG studies show the intrinsic muscles of the foot are very quiet. But once we get on single-legs things like a, a lunge or just standing on one foot, I give my patients, especially the kids, this exercise. They're to stand on one foot and they're to map out the alphabet with their, their non-weight-bearing foot. So they do an A and a B and so on. And meanwhile, the other foot is 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 standing there. And it's twitching oh, around they're, they're all over the place yeah. mm. trying to maintain. Now, there's your intrinsics. But things like... Um, lunges, uh, walking lunges um, and other single leg support exercises will stimulate those greater muscles that what I talked about before the calves that you propose the, the perineals a lot and I think they're great supplementary exercises so instead of looking for five variations of the squat you do your squat and you'll do your front squats and, and perhaps a safety bar squat or something but also do some single leg stuff. If you're that person who has an intrinsic uh, habit of being unstable with with your foot structure
0: it's actually something I applied to people before they squat too so just not not heavy work but unilateral stability work to start to again switch on all the things not just with the foot but throughout the entire body that we can't generally just do with just a warming up with squat but doing some unilateral uh, leg movements to start to create
2: that uh feedback so well it's that activation yes you know it's an activation exercise Mm -hmm. which we've learned um is extremely important um as preparation for for doing bigger lifts. so
1: you are you thinking things like like a bulgarian split squat or something like that or or non-weighted or weighted or
0: i i I, yeah i i think i've chosen things depending on people's uh Skill because I also see if you just give someone lunges, they still might have that lazy foot. Um, but if you, I found if you pull back enough where there's a greater emphasis on the stability side of things, like uh, not using, because sometimes I find if they, with lunging, it's still half bilateral. Um, but if you're doing, say, a single leg RDL with the back leg coming off, then there's more focus on that
2: single foot particularly if we cue it correctly mm-hmm. and, and draw their attention to what we want them to think about. So rather than the performance aspect of it, lift the weight, we're, we're, we're looking for style points. So we're asking them to say, well, okay, this is not um, a, a, a quantitative assessment. We're gonna put a qualitative assessment on how you do this exercise. Mm
0: mm-hmm yeah very interesting um and uh, another question i had and i don't know how much we've talked about or how much i oh, so probably obviously it's a obviously a very big topic but um more information about the sensory feedback so it's not something i know again huge amount in, uh, knowledge in but what are some of the i guess uh some of the factors that contribute to or limit our ability to have this sensory feedback. So, I guess first question is like, what
2: is it? Yeah, well, um, I suppose the the same questions applies with all aspects of posture when we're thinking about um, lifting. Uh, I suppose the back's a very good example. Mm-hmm. You know, where we we become aware. Of using our core to brace and create good spine posture and some of that feedback is occurring at a less than conscious level I refer to those small muscles of the spine that um, that have lots of muscle spindles in them that are providing the brain with information well that's happening in the foot as well muscle spindles and are they high in muscle spindles as well yeah, look, that's a question I've asked a few people that I think should know, and I'm yet to discover that. I think we probably would find, just like the small muscles of the spine, that those tiny little muscles in the foot that don't appear to do anything, like the little inter- interosseous uh, muscles between the metatarsals, We you know, what the heck do they do? But I suspect they're very important um, muscles in, in terms of feedback.
0: Okay, that's interesting. I guess I guess it is similar to the spine. It is hard to activate the uh, the intraspinale and the multivitis muscles without particular exercises that Andrew talks about, with such as like the uh, offset or deviating the center of mass, so that we're able to create that sensory feedback of some sort. So would the uh, it would it would probably be similar to the foot with unilateral exercises on some some part
2: logically that would be the case okay yeah that's very
0: it's, it's good how every part of the body really works different but the same you know um...
1: <laughs> and you gotta get you gotta have your shit together with everything mm. like yeah but it's
2: it's simple isn't it once you understand the principles you can say well okay we know how this works at the spine mm-hmm. when we're trying to create stability surely the body's consistent across joints um, in how we manage this mm.
0: so I you you, you also said um, you uh, you just finished doing some research of some sort I think it was in your email yeah what
2: I did is I it, you know it wasn't a major research um, project that I did I, I set up what I would call like a pilot study okay so I had probably uh 15 or 16 Participants, they were people at pro because they were they were available to me because you know that's where I am, yeah. and um, they ranged from people that were novice powerlifters through to people who had competed at um, national and, and international level. So I had across a small group, fifteen or sixteen people, who volunteered. Now what I did is I um, I. Uh, mapped their foot using a 3D scanner and actually made a prescription orthotic as if they were a patient, as if they'd come to me and said, I want to create more stability in my shoe. And I created uh, a pair of orthotics for each of those subjects to wear in their chosen shoe, whether it be a wobbly Chuck Taylor or whether it be a lifting shoe or whatever it might be. I I was only having the one variable being the orthotic. And I asked them to use it over a period of time, squat with the orthotics and without the orthotics. And then I asked some at the end of the study, um, although that sort of was during uh, the end of the study came when when COVID was uh, upon us. Um, So it was a little bit informal in terms of me gathering the information, but we got it. And um, I asked for their comments in a qualitative way. I wasn't asking, you know, how much extra weight they lived in. Or not interested in that at all because I don't think it would be accurate. Um, I asked how they felt. And I prompted things like, do you feel more comfortable when you wore your orthotics? Did you feel that it altered your balance in any way? Did you feel that it affected your stability in any way? And by and large, most of the subjects said, yes, they felt more stable. The majority did, particularly those who'd self-identified that they had trouble with their feet. Right Now, the people who had who considered themselves when we started the study, I asked a series of questions, who considered themselves to have very stable feet and not have any concerns, they were a bit, oh well, yes, it, it felt okay but it's not something that i would seek. but the people that did say yeah look my feet are shocking um they were wrapped um you know this there was a small bunch out of out of the group say three or four who i could never drag those orthotics out of their shoes if i tried you know they'll continue to use them so it was interesting um to get that so if i was going to set up a proper study um you know we would look more broadly we'd have a good think about you know what what the uh qualitative measures would be and i think what we would find is that those who seek stability would benefit from you know we're just looking at something neutral and something firm that can connect the foot to the floor Um, that's important Um, to help them with their squats
0: so what kind of material you're using for your orthotic would it still be similar to what a lot of others you might see where it's still quite spongy or yeah
2: just... so that's an example that's mine mm-hmm. now that's that's a pretty low arch i think you agree um but it's quite stiff this is not something to walk or run in that's a completely different topic i don't do you know hard stiff orthotics for walkers and runners um but we want to create a stable base i want it to be solid i want it to be like the floor but i want to spread the load over a greater area and i want to align the heel into my perceived neutral posture for squatting not for walking not for running walking and running has a narrow alignment you will follow footprints in the sand and they're pretty linear yeah but if we're squatting we're way out here so that's the neutral position that I find. And this stuff is, is 3D printed, so It's a type of nylon. It's hard.
1: Right. Okay.
0: So would you consider that like the belt where we should, should we still train a lot of the strength of the foot in say a bare, good, yeah. bare barefoot setting and use this yeah. as a form of enhancement to our performance?
1: So a So good question.
0: Yeah.
2: You know, I have, I have, uh, I have a philosophical, and, and, and describe it any other way, vested interest in answering yes to that question. <laughs> but I can't help but assume a great many people, if they had the appropriate type of authority that created the stability and alignment they need for squatting, would benefit. It would make an unstable shoe more stable doesn't change that interface. I think the points that you were making last week, Gus, about, about the instability of that interface between the foot and the floor in the Chuck Taylors, which we picked on last week, mm-hmm. but any other shoe, whether it be, you know, like our running shoe or whatever, is problematic. There's no question about that. Mm-hmm.
0: It was just a good shoe to pick
1: on because <laughs> because everybody in. wears them. But
2: yeah. yeah. so people just wear it because everyone else wears it.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a it's a it's a fashion thing as well, isn't it? So I think I think an important point that there is a difference between the orthotics and the weight belt in that, as you identified earlier, it's very difficult to train the benefit of the orthotic without having the orthotic. Whereas with the weight belt, you make a case, Gus, that people need to train to generate that core pressure and then lean on the well, belt when maybe need a to. little
0: bit because i do sometimes get people to wear almost like a super light breathing belt um as well to provide provide feet provide feedback. so the belt is not creating extra performance but it creates enough enough pressure around the core for them to uh then feel what brace should a brace yeah. should feel like without the additional support
1: well, you got me using a resi- i use a resistance band every when i train the squat i train with the resistance band around my trunk and that just, but, I just need to know. Sense, yeah, I need to know when I embrace because I can't seem to provide that for you about myself at
2: the moment. But, uh, well, the orthotic can work for those who don't want to wear an athotic, it can still work for them as a training aid, okay, as a feedback mechanism mm-hmm. to tell them this is where you should be. Because sometimes, you know, it's like when you do a lift and you think that was pretty good, and you look back on the video you think, oh, God, I didn't know I was there. Um, So some people's self-awareness is unreliable. And you don't want to rely on your buddies because, you know, they'll (laughs) either be too critical or too praiseworthy, depending on who you are.
0: This is why you need your health experts in your
2: corner, don't you? Well, I think we need to... I think it's education. You know, everything I've I've talked about today, you can take away... And with an intelligent eye look at things and work it out for yourselves Mm. Mm -hmm. you know you you don't need someone like me all the time but it's the responsibility of someone like me to perhaps get these ideas out be an educator Andrew Locke calls himself an educator and he is Mm. he provides all that information largely for free um, about the stuff that he knows now he sees patients who have problems on a daily basis and he works one-on-one that's appropriate so do i but we also have an opportunity amongst our friends and peers to to disseminate this information as education
0: mm-hmm. yeah i think to be a good good coach good physician or, um, whatever it is it's a it is to have a, a, a you know it's almost kind of almost kind of work your work your patient or work your client out of your job
2: yeah, this, when I was talking at the beginning about the, the, uh, the changes that I've observed um, coming back into the fitness industry after a, after a break, um, one of the things that astonishes me is the, the uh, willing dependence of people to, to have for a trainer. Mm. It baffles me. Mm. When we have information available to us um, via the internet um, that people are so dependent on a trainer,
1: yeah, I think. I mean, we're we're going down a rabbit hole that could go on forever here. But I think I think um, you're right. I think I think it's important that everybody. You can't just put all the knowledge base in somebody else's core and just and just lean on that. You have to gain your own knowledge base to complement it.
0: I it's mean, very big to create a good athlete too. In terms of yep. they can't have dependency on on the coach. I try to create as much independence as 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 possible mm. and at every aspect and it's very hard for some people easier for some but of
2: course it varies
0: yeah i um.
1: i mean me personally I, I like obviously i work with you i work with Haley, who's a nutritionist i could like for me it's just an accountability thing if, if if somebody else is holding me accountable i'm far more likely to pay attention to the details that like, that that's what it is for me um and i i do you find that that's a similar thing for you? Are there people who wouldn't take it as seriously as they should if they weren't paying for your services? Oh, well, that's a tricky question too. Yeah. I guess uh, you can't ask people, can you? But
2: No, but I'm sure it's true. That's one of those ethical questions yeah. and one of those, those curious questions, mm-hmm. but I do have patients who, who will come back for review and everything's mm-hmm. fine. They've got their exercises for homework to go on for the rest of their lives. You know, they've got their orthotics as a tool that they can use as they see fit. But they're desperate to ask, oh, when do I come back? <laughs> and I'll say, well, you only come back if you've got a problem. Or, should I should yes. have come back in six months. No, don't come back in six months. <laughs> but they want to.
0: I guess the question I'd like to ask is, how, do you, how has powerlifting changed your career or maybe the way you think about it? what you do
2: that's an interesting question Um, it certainly has encouraged me to utilize the self-management elements of a treatment program for example the exercises and and so forth more than my habit was in the past okay I think um, Podiatrists, just depending on your point of view, are either lucky or unlucky in that we have a modality that works, for if it's done well, works very quickly in in, um, changing the foot behaviour of someone who has a problem. It's very good at relieving pain for most of those problems very quickly. And so we just go to it. It's also... um, uh, financially it it, it it works out quite well if you've got a high caseload of orthotic patients you tend to be more wealthy than the person who doesn't mm-hmm. um, so we have a vested interest in, in emphasizing that um, so uh, I think uh, that's a problem for podiatry um, and I don't want to be critical of my peers in that way, but I think they need to have a bit of a look at, at let's use other things as well. And I think uh, to get back to your question, um, I think it's encouraged me to practice like I don't have to make a living. So just let's say use all the modalities that I have in a broad sense, both exercise and orthotic wise and then other shoe interventions, we can put you know odds and sods inside a shoe that are, are short of an orthotic. Um, to get the best result for that person, both short-term to relieve pain, if there's pain, and long-term to improve function, just to make them better functioning humans.
0: It seems to be the same across the board in terms of yep. the best therapists and coaches and yep. the physicians are the people who try to work themselves out of the job, because you know, there are plenty of things out there that help, um, you can keep relying on with physios or with uh, massage, remedial, to keep coming back every single week, because it makes them feel a bit better every single time and feel that they create that dependency, but they're never solving the problem ever. Yeah. No.
1: No. I, I, so no. what I also think what I've noticed, cause we've spoken to a number of experts, um, what I've noticed that everybody has in common is their willingness to work with other practitioners in other areas because they're looking at solving the problem, not siloing their, I I've worked with a lot of in more in the manual therapy side of things before, and there's no notion of outside of what they're focusing on, what they're doing. And I think something I have noticed is you're all experts, but you're all willing to, for instance, you're willing to look at interventions that will affect the hip that also affect that. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's a holistic way of looking at it.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, I always look at it as the way I teach, the way I teach lifting. So I used to run squat, bench, deadlift courses, but I find they were really bad or not great way to teach because there were no fundamental standing of global movement and how Mm. systems impact all parts of the body. So I've changed my, the way I teach squat, bench and deadlift is at the nearly the end of 10, 12 weeks of teaching, um, uh, how every part of the body integrates with everything, with everything else. In, in, in a sense, and I think this is where that, that all our issues are are, are, all, are generally not specific, cited they're global, in some part. And so you know, dysfunctions um, from the foot can also be up from upstream dysfunctions as well. So you know, I always try and teach people to you know address things in a. I guess I, I try to create some sort of uh, order to mm. to teaching it where we look at core, then we look from. <coughs> So proximal to distal and then from foot to top, it generally is like the direction I try to take.
2: It works both ways. Mm. So
1: just for something, there's lots we've unpacked here. That's useful information, but would you recommend Stephen, that if you've got a, a, a serious lifter, would you recommend that they, if, it, because someone like me, I'm not even sure if I've got a stable foot or not. I know Gus would probably take one look and be able to tell, but do you think it would be beneficial for somebody like that to go for a podiatry consultation and just be like, basically find out where they sit?
2: It could be, but I have, oh, look, I'm, I'm, I'm on a bit, bit of an awkward position here because I'm not sure my colleagues have, have, <laughs> yeah. have any understanding of lifting, right? Okay. Um, there are many out there who are wonderful at walking and running right. and uh, just you know foot movement in general, but that's a moving foot. Um, and there's a whole bunch of, of, mm. of debates and, and, and there's, a, there's different levels of expertise. But um, unless they have a good understanding of what they're actually looking at, um, then it might be difficult. I think you would have to be very proactive in communicating to the podiatrist what you're looking for yeah. and the scenario that you're working in, you kind of have to prompt them to go, oh, your foot's not linear, it's out here. Um, oh, you want a stable base, you you don't have to go from, from heel contact to toe off. Um, so I think an intelligent, um, well-regarded podiatrist should be able to work it out um, and help you with that assessment. If you help them <laughs> understood. Yeah.
0: I, think yeah, I find this is where a lot of people get their, the research, there's so much research on, on more endurance athletes running. And, um, so when I've seen a lot of, a lot of, uh, specialists in some areas, they've taken a lot of the, their, their approach to athletes from research from runners. Well, Absolutely, and stuff. So the it's, not, it's just the the research on behind them is just not the don't apply the same.
2: No, it doesn't, because as I said right at the beginning, the foot is one of those unique structures that has to work at the extreme of mobility and the extreme of stability, and all the research seems to be done on the mobility hmm. aspect of it, and how that's going to be controlled, and and you know where it's out of timing and, and strength and, and so forth.
0: I think it's like a a bit like the core. The core operates different under load than it does under most other sports. You know, we usually have a very flexible movement, range of movement of the spine, except once we have load, the spine should not move. So I guess it's a similar, I guess similar,
1: you would say it would be similar with the foot.
2: It is, it's quite deadlift, yeah. Mm. Now, we haven't talked too much about deadlifts. So sorry, I, was just,
1: I was just about to go there. I don't, know, I don't know
2: how much time you've got, but... Look, why don't we leave it for another day, perhaps? But um, the deadlift is, is somewhat the same, but a little bit different. You know, we can't apply this principle of bringing the floor to the foot as we do in, in, in squat mm. um, to deadlift because we want to be on the actual floor. So that requires a foot covering that connects our foot to the floor, our actual foot to the floor. So it needs to be a very thin uh, covering. It needs to be grippy, but it needs to allow our foot to function much in the same way as we've been talking about with the squat. Okay.
1: Okay there's obviously small differences there in terms of weight distribution on the fault would be slightly different things like that. So,
0: so what are some of the things in a deadlift and why, why the shoe, why would you, cause I mean, it's the type of shoe I wear anyway for a deadlift, but why, um, what, what was, what's your logic behind that conclusion for that type the of The conclusion that it, that it has okay, to I'm be just,
2: thin? Yeah. Thin, grippy. Well, okay. If, if this was, was, um, like a Herman Munster shoe and was, you know, four inches thick, mm-hmm. it wouldn't matter to a squat because yeah. it's not the distance to the floor that matters. But the distance to the floor matters in a deadlift yeah. because you've okay. got to pull that.
0: So we're, we're talking this from, from an aspect in terms of, like, I mean, keeping the range of motion within a...
2: Is that more what we're... Discussing That's right. Here? Yeah, okay. Yeah. So, but we still want... To connect our foot to the floor in a way that optimizes the ability to create that stable foot, so we're not losing energy, we're not losing alignment. It's not becoming a weak link in those that chain of movement. So I would recommend a shoe that has grip, so we don't slide. Obviously, that's logical Um, because I'm I'm thinking perhaps in sumo more than conventional. and, and, I would I would go for something that feels like the floor. Mm-hmm.
0: I, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I I, I find with the, uh, with the deadlift because we have actually mm, usually in a, conventional probably in particular uh, a smaller base of support, and that I, I I see a tendency in a weak foot the deviation of the center of mass changes far more dramatically and have it bigger impact, and when we strengthen the foot, we have better ability to control that uh, center. I guess just one variable of many, obviously, to control where that center of mass is moving.
2: Look, I have I have to um, defer to you because of your experience in that, and that makes perfect sense, and I, I can't find an argument with it. I agree with you. So all the things that we've talked about in terms of trying to support the stable foot with exercises for those muscles that create the stability all the way from the hip through to the the muscles that that affect the foot are all relevant. Mm -hmm.
0: How is your uh, preparation going for States? Um,
2: I'm not sure. I feel fine. Um, I've done... um, I've done PBs in in each of the lifts. Lifetime PBs at H60 in the last uh, couple of weeks. Awesome! That's great. So that, that has to that has to be a good report. <laughs> I've got it. Yeah, as if knows, you've got to do it on the day. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah it doesn't count unless you're on the platform. Oh, God, um, like are
0: this. you? I think Andrew is saying you're going for some masters
1: records there.
2: Well, according to Open Powerlifting. If I do the 285 kilos in the squat that I did last Sunday, that will eclipse the uh, world best, uh, all federations world best um, in that 125 kilo class, which is currently 283 and a half. So if I do 285, um, I assume I'll be the man. That's great. (laughs) That's awesome. Um, now there's another chap who's lifting on the day. He's also a Steve, Steve Brown. He's in the under uh, 110 kilo class, and he'll probably do the same. So you'll probably to have two two old geezers um, <laughs> break uh, the 60 year old uh, squat record in the 110 and the 125 kilo class if we both do our our lifts as we want to. Amazing. Um,
0: yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure you'll do. I'm sure you'll do well. <laughs> um, When is it? Another next week?
2: Yeah, next Sunday. It's due, you know, COVID dependent.
0: Oh, yeah, of course. course. um...
2: Good thing it wasn't this weekend. We'd be snooking. Yeah. We're in lockdown. Melbourne going to close. Yeah, yeah, they're in a summer. Melbourne Melbourne closed until next Wednesday.
0: Well, lucky it's that time when you rest anyway.
2: Well, you're supposed to. So it stops me going to the gym and and mucking it up.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, because overtraining is usually the problem, isn't it? all right so so just with a point to finish on i'm i'm a power lifter i've got chuck taylors okay (laughs) do i throw them in the bin and go and buy a lifting shoe like what should i what should i have i mean i know you're talking about different shoes for different lifts and things but as a general is, is the converse not the way
2: I don't think the Converse is the best choice okay. because I see too much sloppy movement. I sent uh, a link to Gus last night uh, illustrating a bloke that was lifting in Chuck Taylors mm. and he was all over the shop. Um, so clearly it's not a good shoe for him. He may love it, yeah, but he's like the man who digs a hole with his hands. Um, he doesn't know a shovel would work better unless he yeah. tries it. Yeah, um, so... Uh, You know, a lifting shoe like this that has the heel pitch is going to change your balance. Mm -hmm. Uh, Obviously, weightlifters like that, some powerlifters like that, and they'll do their squats in a lifting shoe. Um, I don't like it. I don't like what it does to my balance. Um, You know, I bought these and I wore them. They're obviously very new, um, but I discarded them. I said, they're the work of the devil. I can't use that. Um, Even though I loved the stability. I loved that interface feel yeah. that I felt between my foot and the floor, but I couldn't wear it because yeah. it, it threw my, my centre of mass into place I didn't like. I actually personally, and this is just 100% personal, um, I wear this thing, which has no heel pitch. It has um, cardboard to outer sole, which is hard. Yep. Um, I put my thottic in it. I lace it up so it's stable for foot and ankle, and the interface between me and the floor is very good because this is hard enough and thin enough, well, hard enough to make it feel like the floor, and um, uh, low heeled so I can I can feel the balance that that I prefer.
1: That so that's that. that there's another thing we haven't covered there because that looks for people listening that's that effectively looks like a high top. Um, and what benefit that would provide to ankle stability versus because obviously you get a high top Chuck Taylor as well versus a, a low profile one.
0: Usually I find the issue with ankles is, is mobile is always a lack of mobility. Okay. Mm. Um, and I don't, you can correct me if I'm wrong? Is um, a lot of that comes down to the dysfunction of the foot.
2: Sometimes, but some people's ankle mobility is is just the shape of their talus and their ability to dorsiflex at the ankle joint. If they've got a big fat front to their talus, they can't they can't dorsiflex very much. I'm someone who has excellent dorsiflexion at my ankle. That's that's purely genetic, and uh, I've never had a problem with it. So using using the you know, the low heel position um being able to stabilize beyond the foot to the ankle um is something i can do without compromising my efficiency but that's going to be variable from person to person the reason i like this shoe and i'll get back to it if it was a low cut shoe i'd still wear it the high top aspect is not what i'm looking at i'm looking at the minimal thickness of the sole and the firmness of this outer material that's hard rubber um, brings my foot to the floor and my foot can behave like I want it to behave on the floor. Not like on your Chuck Taylor, where it's going to move around yeah. because it's squishy.
1: So for, for people listening that the, 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 um, the thickness of the sole on that shoe was got what? Millimeters. Um, in this one? Yeah. Oh, look, I guess it's probably thin. two or three. Yeah. Yeah. Unbelievably thin. Yeah.
0: Cool. Um what what are some indicators of that there are anatomical restrictions in dorsiflexion um that of the ankle? Of the ankle, yeah. So because I mean yeah. it, it could be it could be tight but it might not be anatomical. It might not be due to their structure or anything like that. So how would you Yeah,
2: okay. So uh, tight Achilles or tight calves would be muscular things. So we start looking at those posterior chain um elements mm-hmm. we do a we do a, uh, a test in clinic um, measuring people's lunging capacity whereby they we come up against the wall we push the foot against the wall and get the person to lunge their knee to the wall mm-hmm. you following me mm-hmm. so far so yep. the foot's against the wall they lean forward knee to the wall and then we gradually bring them back and we see if they can still touch the wall with their knee without their heel coming off the ground. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there is there is a standard out there, which is the poor one because it doesn't account for different sized people. But we say, you know, around about 10 centimetres in, in podiatry world um, is is considered a useful benchmark. So if, if someone can only get, you know, three centimetres away from the wall before their heel's coming off the ground, then they clearly have a problem. That may be structural. It may be soft tissue.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: But people generally know. They come in and say, oh, look, my calves are real tight. And so say, yeah. well, let's have a look at that. And you, you, um, so most lifters being... Self-aware enough will know if they've got tight calves and hamstrings and stuff, because it usually almost always goes together, doesn't it? That posterior chain tends to work as 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 links that are similar characteristics.
0: Hmm. So you could test it. I guess that's that's the way you could test it is to do some do some do some work on the calves and see if it increases range, and then we know what we're deal- You know what you're dealing with. Yeah,
2: yeah. So we would we'd work that that calf through. Its, its functional range, and try and advance that. Um, Wobitis saying that we're stretching it. We'll get in trouble from someone else if we say that. I have heard that word this way. and didn't say it. <laughs> <laughs> but we will, we will functionally challenge it through its range of motion hmm. um, until we get better range. Yeah. Now, sometimes people will cheat on that, and I'll say cheat, because they'll pronate to do it because if you pronate, you'll get extra ankle dorsiflexion.
0: Yes, I see it all the time.
2: (laughs) So we don't want that because of the other consequences of the foot pronation. And I think that's where some people get a little bit confused. They say, well, look, I need to pronate to encourage ankle dorsiflexion. Well, you've got to weigh up the cost benefit of one being compromised for the other. And if the small amount of pronation that increases the ankle dorsiflexion in a favourable way, doesn't cause any problems, fine, go go with it. But if that ankle, if that foot pronation is causing an unhelpful alignment of the knee or a loss of um, force becoming a, a wobbly link, um, then that's going to be a compromise.
0: Hmm. Um, well, I think, um... I really appreciate all the coming on and uh, yeah. teaching us more about about the
1: foot. It definitely clears a lot of <sighs> that, things. That was awesome. Yeah, because, because it's not something I ever even thought about before in terms of most people don't. So that was great. Um,
0: yeah, I, I think there's I think there's definitely more we could talk talk about, but then I might be here another hour. Um, but um, thank you for coming on um it's my pleasure and um might even have a thing about If you if we have some more things or you have ideas about more things you want to discuss Definitely. in a dif- slightly maybe in the same area but different and want to explain a little bit more and talk a bit more i'm always happy to i'm always happy to learn and that's what this podcast is yeah. not just a- about for for everyone else but just also for me if i'm learning then everyone else is hopefully learning <laughs> yeah
2: yeah, so, yeah i really I, appreciate invitation um it's been fun and uh you know i love the education part of, of
1: this opportunity awesome oh and good luck next sunday thank hopefully, you hopefully next time we talk you're a world record holder.
2: Yeah. Hopefully. well look you know it sounds very boastful to bring that up beforehand but uh perhaps it gives me the motivation to, You've to, got to well, you gotta
1: well you gotta do it now right and hopefully,
0: <laughs> hopefully the government over there will wake up and let you see. <sighs> yeah well i'd say. we'll yeah. see
2: my my window of opportunity is closing i was i was wanting to do it last year but, uh, yeah oh, yeah i'll be i'll be 61 before you know we get yeah. it done
0: all right all right well thank you thank you enjoy your day